that's what I really want people to start to understand is that, you know, we need to value staff and it's also can be quite fun and enjoyable. It doesn't have to be like sustainability doesn't have to be a bore or a slog, I guess. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking about, I don't know, I think it's one of the most important issues in food and that is food waste and I suppose food saving, how not to waste food. Uh, We're talking today to Alex Elliott-Howery, who has co-written with Jamie Edwards, The Food Savers A to Z, which is an extraordinary book that every page you open up, there are just ideas that I think, oh my goodness, I'm definitely taking that into my life. Alex, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you for having me, Danny. Uh, So you're very well known for being part of Corner Smith in Sydney and also for your books. Um, How do you describe what you do? Yeah, it's a funny one. Like when you have to fill out a form of like, what do you do? I never (laughs) quite know what to write. Um, I've been practicing just writing um, author and seeing how I feel with that, but I don't think that quite sits right either. So... And I did weirdly join LinkedIn recently, which is very strange and didn't know what to write. So I've kind of been, I think maybe because I'm not a chef, um, I feel like lately I'm becoming more of a like advocate for um, food education. But I don't know if that's what I'd write. But yes, I would say small business owner, cookbook writer, maybe food education. Yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, tell us a bit about how you've, changed your thinking around food because I mean I know that reducing food waste has always been a part of what you've done but I feel like you're coming at it from a different angle now than when you founded Cornersmith. Yes absolutely and this has been a lot on my mind especially when I was writing this book so when I started Cornersmith what 10 years ago or so I started it with my husband James um, we were at that stage the conversation around food was really different and people were just starting to want to talk about and think about seasonality and where your meat comes from and it was a really different um, climate I guess in what people wanted to engage with around food and I feel like restaurants were doing it but cafes kind of hadn't started that having those conversations yet so when just before we started Cornersmith, I was really interested in trying to figure out how you could be sustainable in the city because um, I love living in the city and I, while all the kind of, you know, food practices I love have more of a, I don't know, I guess a country vibe, I am a city person through and through. So I was really interested to try and figure out how you could build community, how you could be really, um, I guess, self-reliant but also live in the city. And at that stage... I was home with little kids, so my life looked a bit different as well. There was more time, I guess, being at home. Um, So I got super engaged in trying to figure out how to make everything from scratch. And that was really my mission, which was like, we need to be less reliant on the supermarkets. I need to understand food. And food waste was part of the reason why I got into pickling and preservation, but it wasn't the main mission of mine. It was more about being um, more self-reliant, I guess. Um, So when we first started Cornersmith, it was really about that and I just wanted to make people think a little bit about where their food was coming from in in the big smoke. Um, I guess over the last 10 years, uh, I have my, like personally, my life has gotten bigger and more complicated um, and my businesses 
grew really fast, which brings, you know, less time at home. And my kids got bigger as well. So I no longer am kind of completely in control of what happens in my household. So I had to sort of start to rethink that because you can't come home at six o'clock at night and homestead really. Um, and like, it's not sustainable for a person to be making everything from scratch. And it's actually not the answer. So I guess what I've done over the last 10 years is kind of, um, hone in on the skills I love, which is cooking from scratch, but trying to figure out how it can be part of a busy city life rather than just the, the only thing that you do. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting because yeah, it's it is very earthy and it seems like a great idea to make everything from scratch and do all that pickling and preserving, but it can also feel so daunting. And yeah, you can't just do it um, on the spur of the moment, or you don't get the results um, in the moment. Um, so, did you find that people? you know, as much as lots of people are engaging with what you did, that some people just found it a, a bit off-putting? Um, look, Cornersmith was a weird instant overnight success story and it was not what we were anticipating. Like we hadn't run a business before. It felt a bit of a risk to be kind of trying to take this sustainable ethos that we were trying to live by at home and see if we could make it work in a business. I think it was a bit a combination of a lot of things of like right time, right place. Um, and, you know, obviously we work really hard and have a great product, but there was something that was going on culturally where people wanted to engage with food a little bit. Um, so yes and no. I think what Cornersmith gave people was some people could engage with it as in they could pickle and preserve alongside me in that same way, um, whereas other people could just come to the cafe and they could buy stuff or they could bring us their backyard produce. What I think um, happened then, it was really for people who were really interested in that kind of cooking and that approach to running their kitchens, gardens, etc. whereas what we've evolved into now is more for everybody, and I think that's because of where also like we're in a climate emergency that no one can ignore anymore. So people are looking for, for ways to get involved. So yes, I think people, it's either they, they would get overwhelmed or it would just be like out of their, you know, realm of what they were interested in doing. So I think it felt almost a little bit too, I guess it had a reputation for, you know, like being awesome and being sustainable, but there was a, um, should I say twee? I feel like that's being mean to myself. But, you know, there was, <laughs> there was, you know, there was pickling and there was like, it, there was a kind of, I don't even want to say cute factor because I'm trying not to, you know, like I love old Cornersmith, but I do think you're right. It's evolved into something else. And what I've always trying to do over the last 10 years is stay on top of where the community is actually at and the conversations that need to be had. So that's, that's evolved as Cornersmith's evolved as well. Yeah. Well, well, tell us about this new book, um, Food Savers A to Z, and what the aim of it is and, and how it sort of ties into the life that you're living now. Yeah. So the, I guess it kicked, like the first two books that I wrote were very much the Cornersmith story. And, you know, they've sold really well and people love to learn how to eat like Cornersmith or how to make, you know, a batch of whatever, chili jam or apricot jam or whatever. And that was really awesome to watch. But then I felt like I needed to bring the conversation into people who actually either didn't know how to cook or were looking for ways 
to cook more thoughtfully, keeping in mind the environment as well. So Use It All, which was the last book, was kind of an entry into that. And that was really about getting people to shop smart, basically, so that you could use everything that you had. So, you know, you could, it, it was Cornersmith at home, I guess. Whereas this book, The Food Savers um, A to Z, really goes into Jamie and I's home kitchens um, and trying to look at them as a way, as a site for positive change, I guess. Like we're all totally overwhelmed by the, um, how we can do our bit to help with the situation that we're in environmentally. And sometimes I think that's just so overwhelming and daunting that you don't know where to start so you don't do anything. And our approach with this book is please don't try to make everything from scratch. We did that and it is not the answer. Um, but here what you need to do is basically just use everything that you already have. So we're trying to teach people how to kind of shop their pantry, I guess, and their fridge and their fruit bowl slash garden, whatever they whatever the situation is. Um, and we made it ingredient-based. So what I want people to do with this book is actually look in their fridge and go, wow, that bunch of kale is not looking great or I'm really sick of looking at those two parsnips I accidentally bought. Um, what am I going to do? You turn to P for parsnip, K for kale, and there's a gazillion ideas there for you. And it's all really simple and you don't have to have lots of ingredients and you don't have to have heaps of skills. And it's a way to not only do kind of good environmental stuff, but also save yourself money as well. Yeah, well, okay. I'm turning to P for parsnip and it says, don't be afraid to add parsnips to sweet baked goods. Uh, so you can put it in muffins, um, include diced parsnips in the barley and vegetable soup, mashed parsnips. I mean, it's very, um, uh, yeah, it's just very realistic and very practical. Um, and, you know, I just read before about using, making little chips out of potato peelings. And then I'm thinking, well, couldn't you make parsnip peel chips as well? I bet you could. Danny, you so, can. Yes. Yeah, so, so not only are there great ideas, but I think it sparks other, um, yeah, just, it just, it, honestly, it makes you think differently. And I know, I know last time I spoke to you, you talked about um, using the green ends of leeks. Um, and I always do that now. Oh, that makes me so happy. And this is what I mean. It's like, you know, we don't, no one needs to be perfectly sustainable. Like that is not what, going, it's never going to happen. And that's not what the answer is. But everybody doing like a little thing, sure, it's not going to fix the climate emergency, but it is definitely going to help. And it's going to make people hopeful. And I think that's what we've got to do as well. So this book for me, I really like how you talked about that because this book for me almost is like a companion or a guide rather than a cookbook. And it might be that you turn to people for parsnip, get an idea, and then go, oh, cool, actually, Ottolenghi's got that great recipe that I remember now. So it's kind of we wanted it to be a really helpful tool in the kitchen um, that works alongside however else you cook, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's so dispiriting to throw food away um, that I think anything that uh, – yeah, it just makes us feel more capable and gives us other ways to use what's already in our fridges and pantries. I think it's it's so valuable and really empowering. Um, it does take away that feeling of hopelessness that, um, yeah, we can have, I suppose, as, as cooks, but also as citizens um, in this, you know, on this, uh, yeah, crazy planet. Exactly. Um, 
so Alex, what do you reckon? I mean, there's a lot of people working in hospital listening to this. What do you reckon um, cafes and restaurants could take from this approach? Look, I don't really want to give any hospitality people any advice right now because everyone's just trying to get by. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think just do whatever you'd need to do to stay operating at the moment. And hospital is a different game now. It's not what it used to be. Um, I guess the good thing that we find at Cornersmith around stuff like this is that it can, it does open up a really creative conversation. And I think sometimes limitations actually are more helpful creativity, creatively than just kind of saying you've got free reign. So, you know, in our kitchens, it's like, cool, you're going to have celery on the menu in a salad. What's happening with the leaves? Um, and then so another dish has to come out of that. And I think that's also why people like working with us as well is that it's you know trying to put all the puzzle pieces together and honestly it is really cost saving and I try to like that's for hospo and also for people at home is that you're buying cauliflowers with the leaves on it you're buying two ingredients for the price of one so you cook your cauliflowers however you would but those leaves are so delicious and then they're kind of like a green so I usually save them till the end of the week and then saute them in lots of oil or butter with, um, you know, garlic and caraway. And I would serve that if we were having like some grilled fish or I'd put it in an omelette. So I don't have to buy spinach that week because I know I've got the greens. So I think that works in both home and kitchens is trying to make something out of the bits that we generally toss without thinking about it. Mm. And best before and use by dates are really a really tricky, um, yeah, side of confusion for a, a lot of people. What kinds of things have you come up with for using products that perhaps I don't know the cream that seems like it's just turned those kinds of things? Oh yeah, sure. So firstly, I just I mean I don't want to get all conspiracy theory, but use by dates are I mean they're kind of made up like. Anyway, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but I... You can say that. I agree. I mean, yeah, it's like we want they want us to buy more. They want you to throw <laughs> things away and buy more. They don't want to get sued. You know, all of the reasons. And I'm not encouraging anyone to eat anything rotten. I just need to put that out there But <laughs> as a health warning. But what I do think we need to do, which we have lost because of the industrial food system and use by dates, is our um, ability to trust our senses and our instinct and I uh, you know decades before us when use by dates didn't exist you smelt stuff you looked at stuff you um, listened to things I know that sounds you know a bit mental but the sound of food is really important because fizzing is not a great is good in some places but not in other places and you know the thud of a piece of fruit once you start actually engaging with ingredients you know what they're meant to look taste smell sound like Um, so I really encourage people, number one, is to kind of do a weird sensory experience where you look, you smell, you taste, you listen. And then I think our gut instinct is, should tell us stuff as well. And that would be my number one rule is to really get in there and have a good investigate. But things like dairy, if it's a little bit whiffy, um, you cook with it. And then it's totally fine to eat. So there's a recipe in the book called There's Nothing Wrong With That Cream Potatoes or something along those lines. And every time I've got slightly whiffy cream, I just, in my mind, um, I'm like, okay, cool. That's definitely going to be the potato bake on the table tonight. So 
what I want is not only that you're not throwing it away, but you let the strange things in your fridge inspire you for what's for dinner rather than going, oh, I'm you know, going to get some fish because we're going to have fish. You're like, oh, I've got, I've got that all those weird herbs left over. I'll make some chimichurri and then I know I'm going to pick up some fish. So I kind of want you to think backwards. Like it's not thinking about the big main thing that's your inspiration. It's the odd things like the smelly cream. <laughs> mm, I love that. And I, I love – the, the idea of these base recipes that you can put anything, all kinds of different things in. Can you perhaps talk about some of those, whether it's um, baked goods or, or curds and those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, once you start to learn how to cook and, you know, you don't even have to be a really good cook, but once you understand the process of cooking, you realize that everything is kind of the same thing um, and you just have to, again, I know I keep saying it, but it's like engaging with the ingredients. So starchy vegetables, uh, root vegetables all kind of act in the same way and green things all kind of act in the same way. So we've left lots of recipes in there, which is like green fritters and you just put whatever green things you have in there. Um, you know, or like the parsnips I ended up, I did. I, I mentioned those because I had a couple in my fridge that Jamie actually grew for me that were really annoying because no one really wants to eat a parsnip. But I turned with. I did the Rosties in there, and as I was reading that, I was like, "Oh, that's really helpful because it explained to you that if you're going to do a Rosti with potato, it's a bit more watery, so make sure you squeeze that out. Whereas if you're making it with a carrot, it's starchy enough just to you don't need to do that. And it's little things like that that will actually make you not only be a better cook, but really be able to use up what comes into the house. So we've got lots of adaptable recipes. And what I like about this book is that it's almost a bit like a, one of those choose your own adventure novels that we read when we were kids, where it's like you kind of get to a point and then it says, but if you've got, you know, silver beet instead of spinach, turn to this page and check out this. So it kind of takes you on a bit of a, a learning journey, I guess. Are there any ingredients that you actually steer away from because they aren't multi-purpose enough or, you know, that, you know, when they get um, wobbly or, or pongy that you just can't do anything with them? I think, yeah, I mean, definitely there's things that um, we tried to choose. I think there's like 150 ingredients in there. Is that true? That sounds insane. There's a lot of ingredients in there. Um, and, oh, yeah, 150 common vegetables, fruits, and kitchen staples. We tried to choose things that were most people have or know about. So it's not the obscure ingredients in here. Um, it's kind of everyday stuff. Yes and no. Like there, there are some ingredients, I guess, that couldn't you couldn't do something else with, but I guess it's more knowledge of knowing, you know, there's a recipe in there that's like a foolproof jam recipe which is basically you can use anything for it and you're going to have to do some trial and error to go oh well actually strawberries don't have enough pectin or as much pectin to set as something else um you know extra like as blackberries so that's going to be a bit of a softer set jam than the other one so it's kind of allowing there to be um variations in what you're cooking and understanding that as well i don't really stay away from any ingredients I just do know that if you bring stuff into your house you eat you have to know there's going to be an output for that in ingredient otherwise don't buy it and I think one of the biggest tips I learned is if you're buying say berries and a pineapple eat the berries first 
because they perish much faster than the pineapple. Or, you know, if you're buying basil and parsley, eat the basil first because that only lasts for a couple of days, whereas the parsley, you can wrap that up, store it in the fridge, and it will last really well. So it's kind of... It's always just getting to know your ingredients. Mm, I think that's, yeah, so important. And, you know, just going back to the jam thing and the, and the, the softer set, I think there's also a lot of permission in this book that, you know, you might have softer set jam, but that's okay. Like it can be a drizzle rather than something that you spread. Um, so it's it's just that sort of that you don't have this idealised vision of um, – of what something should turn out to be or, or, or what dinner has to be. in, in Exactly. Yeah. And, Danny, that's why we didn't put any pictures in the book because there is not one photograph, which feels like a big risk, especially at the moment when we're saturated with social media and images. But I was like, I don't want anyone to have a preconceived, you know, expectation of what this dish needs to look like. It's going to be delicious because, number one, the way that I cook is that like, it's got to be good, otherwise don't bother doing it. Um, but it doesn't have to look like anything and it doesn't have to be impressive and it just needs to be delicious. You need to feel good about making it. It needs to, you know, be um, give you nutrients or warmth or comfort or whatever you need at that moment and it also needs to use up the things that you've already bought. So it's kind of, I don't know, cooking in a bit of a, coming from cooking in a different way, I guess. Mm. And so I'd love to talk to you about how it makes you feel to cook like this or to approach food like this. I'd, I'd say a lot of people, you know, perhaps come in from work, open the fridge, feel like open the fridge, maybe it's a bit messy or you can't quite see the meal that um, might that you can't decode that puzzle. Um, and, yeah, then you might turn to takeaway or whatever. W- what sort of feeling do you have when you approach your kitchen? I think it is immense satisfaction and I don't want to say smugness but there is something like I cook a lot and I have teenagers who eat a lot and I'm the cook in our household so there's a lot going on but I also work full time so what I do in the morning every morning before I leave the house I just look in the fridge and I'm like okay yep there's that half a jar of tomato paste in there I'd really like to use that up Um, and then throughout the day I'm like just it's on my mind slightly and then I'm like great I'll pick up some chicken thighs on the way home and I'll do like a tomato-y simmer sauce and I know there's some couscous in the fridge and then I kind of it sort of all comes together I think that often some of the my favorite meals have been the ones that have been you know kind of come out of nothing and I know that is a skill to have and it is one of my weird superpowers is that I can really turn a pretty great meal into from nothing like my partner is always just like there's nothing there's no food we're gonna get uber eats and I'm like just watch this and it's not that we it's not that I cook um fancy food ever really um and it's not that I spend much time in the kitchen but it is that kind of being able to pair things together quickly and easily I think also you know if I do a big roast chicken or one of those kind of meals that's great everyone loves it but the meal that's really satisfying to me is the meal the next day and that is where I've collected everybody's bones you know or sometimes even before they've finished their plates I'm like planning the next meal and then we'll have a a, I'll make a stock and just a quick stock like not you know 48 hour bone broth like just a quick stock and then I'll put some corn and some noodles in it the next night and it feels I don't know I guess like like you said it's kind of empowering 
And I'm also like, do I'm a hospitality person. Like I need to watch my household budget as well. And it is, it does feel really like, oh, that was good. That was good. We got two meals out of that. Um, and it's really satisfying. Mm, I have to say, we go camping in summer and ha- take a whole lot of food and feel like have it sort of sitting in a trailer and a bunch of eskies. And I, my favourite meal to cook is is the last night meal where it's just like using up everything that you can. Um, weird combos, <laughs> yeah, just usually ends up being a bunch of different salads, like a kind of smorgasbord, and it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. I don't know what that feeling is, but it's like you know that that stuff could have gotten turfed and you could have got a meal that kind of makes more sense, but there is. And I think you're right when you said that, you know, what dinner actually has to look like. It doesn't have to look like kind of what we've been told throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, of that kind of whatever, bigger, more abundant food on the table, chicken and meats and, you know, 14 different salads, whatever that is. It doesn't have to look like that. And I hope that this book helps people kind of go, you know what, sometimes breakfast for dinner is okay. Oh, breakfast for dinner can be the best. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Love it, Alex. Um, well, it's so great to catch up with you. Is there is there one more ingredient or tip that you want to leave us with? I just want to really, it's more that I want people to really get to know ingredients and I don't know, I mean, this book is great because it also makes people, um, there's a little bit of like, you know, uh, humour and intrigue about ingredients throughout us as well and I do think that once we, what, what, what hasn't happened is that, what has happened now is that we don't value food in the same way but getting to know it actually you know, when you really understand what celery is, it's harder to let it just get limp and soggy in the back of the crisper. And that's what I really want people to start to understand is that, you know, we need to value stuff and it also can be quite fun and enjoyable. It doesn't have to be like sustainability doesn't have to be a bore or a slog, I guess. Yeah, I love that. Um, oh, really great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the book. I know I'm going to dip into it like every every week because it's just so usable so yeah on ya um thanks Danny. <laughs> okay uh yeah really good chat catch up soon okay see ya this is dirty linen and i'm danny valent we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives we want to hear from you as well If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.